Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national membership association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Cheryl Ancelli, GIA's program manager. In our recently released Solidarity Not Charity report, we point out the importance of commitment to long-term work with multi-year grants, loans, and equity investments for solidarity economy institutions and networks. To work in true partnership, Grantmakers must understand and respect the power of community-owned infrastructure, as well as the legal and fiscal challenges that informal, emergent, solidarity, and cooperative institutions face. The ultimate goal is systems change. But how is this done with a racial equity and justice lens? Well, we are glad to have Anna Raganskaya, Investment Advisor at Morgan Stanley, and Kita Sullivan, who is Montauk and Shinnecock, and Senior Program Director for Theater at New England Foundation for the Arts, and also GIA board member, joining us today to share how they are supporting investment efforts using the Just Transition Framework. So thank you both for joining us, and we are so glad to have you. So let's dive right in. Okay, a quaint compact, no beach to weed, Kita and Nabasawi, Sullivan, Nichachayoank, Montaka, Kwashinakak, Wonk, Black, Nichapayoank, Nawusdki, Massachusetts, Wampanak, Nipmuk, Ayoankash. Good morning, friends. Um, my name is Kita Sullivan. I am Montaket and Shinnecock, and also Black. Um, I live here in Massachusetts on the land of the Massachusetts Nipmuk and Wampanoag. Uh, folks. I use she and they pronouns. Um, they is probably more appropriate. My language doesn't have gendered pronouns. So um, it is a concept that's foreign to us. I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, as you said, I am the Senior Program Director for Theater at New England Foundation for the Arts, uh, where I am the director for the National Theater Project um, that supports, devised, and ensemble uh, new theater work. Um, both in its creation and its touring. Um, so I get to look at things from both local and national perspective. Um, and uh, I'm also a GIA board member, which I'm very proud of. And I, uh, I love the approach that GIA is taking towards grant making. Thank you, Kita. And Anna? I'm Anna Raginskaya. I'm part of the Blue Rider group at Morgan Stanley, which is a group that focuses on the investment needs of the arts and cultural community. And the majority of our clients are in the visual and performing arts, both uh, foundations, nonprofits, and families. Uh, we also have a big focus on sustainable and impact investing, which is work that I've been really um, grateful to be able to share with GIA in years past on this podcast as well. Uh, and as an organization, we also give back to the art community. We supported the David Hammond show that just closed at the Drawing Center. We're supporting the Nikki DeSantel show that's currently up at PS1, which I especially love for her feminism and her activism uh, and a lot of other exciting projects we have in the pipeline. So thank you for having me here today. Of course. Thank you both for being here. So let's get into the questions. According to Climate Justice Alliance, a just transition is a vision-led, unifying, and place-based set of principles, processes, and practices that build economic and political power to shift from an extractive economy to a regenerative economy. Does this framework feel connected to your work, and how do you engage with just transition in your own institutions? Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so. Prior to becoming um, a grant maker, 
I was an environmental justice attorney for 10 years. So this concept of um, unifying place-based principles with national and international uh, global solutions is something that is a principle that moves moved with me from that work into this work. And I actually um, use that as just how I approach uh, the team that I work with, the artists that I work with, uh, the funders that I work with. Um, and so all answers are local and global. All solutions have a place-based uh, element to it, but they also have a global element to it. And this is what, um, as I'm looking at the funding that we're doing, um, while it is predominantly national, the projects that we are supporting are very often very place-based. They're very individual artist ensemble based. And so those are the people who are most affected by what is going on in their community, what is going on in the world. And uh, one of the founding principles of environmental justice is that solutions come from those folks who are closest to the problem because they know the situation better. And so I use, uh, use that as a way of guiding changes to the program, changes to um, how we as a team interface with artists. Uh, we take a lot of guidance from the artists themselves in order to create and modify our program. And one of the things that has attracted me to GIA and to the GIA board is that GIA is looking at things systematically, globally. What is happening within the world of philanthropy, funding for the arts, where are the issues and who are the people working to solve those issues? Because it's not just about the arts. It is about all of those things that intersect um, with the arts, education, health, environment, all of those things are interconnected. And if, if we're going to move to something that is just as in justice, um, how do we move all of those things together. And that's one of the things GIA is looking at right now is this intersectionality. And I, and that's an approach that is very much a just transition approach. It is not just, uh, it is not solely about the arts over in this pocket. It is about the folks who are most affected by being part of the solution and helping guide that intersectionality. Great. Thank you, Kita. Anna, do you have any thoughts? So I think I'll pick back up on that thread and thinking about intersectionality and maybe go back a little bit to um, one of the places that this term just transition sort of started popping up, which is in this global effort we're all engaging in to make sure that we stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius warming um, to basically avoid a climate disaster. And the issue is, is you can't think about that kind of process in a silo. You have to be thinking about what the solutions are on a climate front, but also be thinking about the communities that are most affected by that transition, including communities um, who are uh, largely sort of sustained by the industries we're trying to move away from because they're industries that are um, emitting a lot of carbon, for example. But at the end of the day, people's livelihoods also depend on those industries. So the idea of a just transition in a 
investment context is we're obviously seeing a lot of demand from investors to both make sure that their portfolios are environmentally sustainable or exposed to kind of these new technologies that we think are extremely important for getting to a, a more sustainable and climate sort of agreeable world, but it's also making sure that we're thinking about the social component of what these investment choices dictate. So ensuring good jobs for people in the future, making sure that companies are focused on reskilling, for example, or making sure that the companies that you're investing in have great policies in place around inclusivity, around supporting their workers, around supporting working mothers in those contexts. So from an investment standpoint, all of these issues are very related because investors ultimately want to make sure that they're um, supporting companies that will continue to operate into the future. And that social contract is seen as critical. People realize that there's a huge liability to companies uh, treating their workers poorly over time. And it's, it's not something that would be a win-win for in investors, companies, or society as a whole. Um, I wanted to share an example maybe of like how this works in practice, this idea of a win-win. So in the last couple of years, the New York State Housing Finance Agency has been issuing um, hundreds of millions of dollars of sustainability bonds that are underwriting uh, multifamily affordable housing units in New York State. And these buildings are also developed to some of the highest industry sort of energy efficiency standards. So we're really seeing these efforts on the part of financial institutions and the organizations that are investing in this kind of bond and trying to move us towards a just transition from a climate and social standpoint. That's great. Thank you, Anna. And I actually, for our next question, I actually want to stay with you for a moment because you began to speak to this and I'm not sure, you know, if you want to sort of drive drive a point home. So, so what does it mean to invest in culture while staying anchored in racial equity or within the just transition framework? Sure. So when I think of the actual term investing in culture, I think a lot of people in the GIA community will think of that as grant making and supporting arts institutions and artists. From my perspective, a very important part of that is ensuring that the communities are there for that great art to happen. And a lot of that is affordable housing, it's community infrastructure, it's education, it's access to capital. So I think when a lot of my clients who are sort of in the arts and cultural space think of investing in culture, they're also trying to ensure that the broader world that this culture is happening in is one that's sort of conducive to that thriving. Kita, do you want to add to that? Um, I think, you know, when the part of the problem that I have when people think of investing in culture, they're thinking primarily of investing in the arts. Mm -hmm. But culture is so much bigger than just the arts. Um, culture is uh, a way, often a way that people express themselves in their daily lives, whether it's in, when they're at school, whether they're, um, you know, outside doing stuff with other folks, family members, people within their culture, whatever that culture might be. And so the investing in culture has come down to this very narrow window of, oh, we're talking about theater, music, dance, uh, painting, photography, writing. Um, all of those things are part of culture, but they are not the only part of culture. Um, one, of the one of the things when I was doing environmental justice work, we always said that everyone has a right to a 
safe and healthy environment where they live, work, play, pray, and are educated. All of those things are interconnected. And um, and the civilization of, of investment and culture has come down to, can I get a grant to do my work? And so I'm, I fight that struggle all the time that, you know, don't think about funding services so narrowly. It's more than the transactional, here's the money, go do your work, give me a report, and we're done. It's what here's some money to help you do what you want to do. And what else can I help you with? Right. And that's, and that is a a framework for funding that falls into that just transition framework, but it's also a more expansive version of the cultural economy Mm -hmm. to use that two words that I have a hard time with putting together cultural yeah. and economy. Um, yeah, yeah, understandably. <laughs> well, speaking of separating art and I, well, I'll say speaking of defining art in one very specific way and culture in one very specific way and separating the two, are there any practices that you might recommend funders do or stop doing in their pursuit of a more just funding ecosystem? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We only have a few minutes on this podcast, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yes. Can we get rid of the 501c3 model? Mm. Let's start with that. The idea that everyone has to incorporate, that one model fits all, um, is not just. We know that one model does not fit all. Um, for some, maybe a 501c3 with a board and all of those things that go along with it, all of the reporting requirements that go along with it, are that may be the model that works best for them. But I am finding in the work that I do with artists that most of them don't want a board. So instead, what they have to do is get a fiscal sponsor. And that fiscal sponsor then takes, skims money off of the off of the money that they should be receiving. So mm-hmm. as funders, how do we change that model so that individuals can receive grants to do the work without having to have that extra burden, uh, reporting burden that we, are, that we keep imposing on folks? Um, we could advocate for a sustainable living wage you know, a basic income, the universal basic income is not a horrible idea for artists. It's a great idea for artists. Mm-hmm. The idea that you don't have to fight to live in order to do what you love, I think is a, is a major thing that funders could be looking at. So I think, um, the idea of investing with impact is really that you're focused on both financial and some sort of social return simultaneously. And the, a lot of the foundations that I work with um, don't see this as a trade-off. And in fact, there's a lot of data out there, including uh, you know, a study we put out on what happened in 2020 that showed that sustainable funds actually outperformed their peers 4.3% in 2020, which is really significant. And when you look at what happened there, a lot of it is um, 
understanding that companies that really invested in the social piece of that equation and environmental, social and governance, ESG, were sort of better set up to handle the challenges of what a shift to remote work and disrupted work looks like. So companies that built flexible, inclusive workplaces that enriched their employees found those returns coming back tenfold uh, during a moment like COVID. So yeah. when our clients think about um, embracing some sort of socially responsible investment strategy, there are a lot of different ways to do this. And it's, it's not one size fits all. So, you know, the most uh, sort of uh, basic version of this is restriction screening. People think about the kinds of industries they don't want to be in based on their organizational values. In a year, uh, you know, given the moment that we're in, we are getting a lot of questions around private prisons and the weapons industry and foundations that are realizing that they're granting, uh, making grants uh, to communities that are really impacted by the violence of these industries, but in the meantime are invested in these industries and their endowments, which is a pretty glaring um, kind of situation. Uh, the second way people approach this is looking for investment managers that are um, proactively choosing companies with the best practices on diversity um, and inclusion internally uh, and sort of using their role as investors to advocate for improvement at all levels of management people are adhering to this and uh, we think that that kind of work is really important and sort of a direct outcome of what investor pressure could look like in changing what our economy really looks like so one kind of practice encouragement would be to take this broader reading of mission and really think more about what are the values that your organization stands for, which, you know, for a lot of the organizations of with GIA is about diversity and inclusion, and that is a absolutely investable area. The Knight Foundation did a study a couple of years ago that showed that only 1.3% of the investment industry's $69 trillion in assets are managed by funds owned by women and people of color. Women and people of color. So you can imagine like how small that sliver is as far as people of color and significant ownership positions of investment funds. So if you think about the flow of capital in the US economy, it's so much driven by who's making these decisions around what companies get funded. And you see these crazy statistics about how low the investment in black entrepreneurs is. So I really think that this is one of the keys of this issue. And we're at a point where we're seeing some really progressive foundations ask for um, these funds directly, which is putting pressure on the financial industry as a whole to make sure that we're sourcing diverse managers and make sure that we're addressing our own structural barriers that um, have been in place for a long time that hasn't allowed them to have access to investment capital around things like size uh, of the funds for example. So firms like Morgan Stanley are now saying, how do we run our own due diligence processes to make sure that funds by, you know, managers of color have access to the investment capital that our pool of clients represents. So I, I'm really like sort of excited about those efforts and excited about seeing the financial industry be responsive to demand in that way. Anna, you have my mind going like all kinds of places <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's really... Um, because there's so many different ways of thinking about this, right? For as grant makers, that's just one portion of what we do, right? We have the grant, we have grant making that we do, but in order to do that grant making, some, the money has to come from somewhere. And there's all this investing that has to happen. And I, as we were talking about the, you know, the perception around socially conscious, socially vested, investing, I was remembering 
back in the early 90s when I was an environmental justice attorney and being told, well, you don't want to put all of your money into socially conscious funds because you will lose money. You know, you were sacrificing your future by doing this. And now these are some of the most absolute best funds out there are the same ones that I was looking at, you know, 20 plus years ago. So I, this perception is persistent and still I, the fact that people still have this, uh, this fog around um, social capital and social investing uh, being a negative thing for your own future. I think uh, it, it's amazing to me. It's appalling to me, but it, I do see so much more positivity and people thinking about that. I know that was one of my first board meetings with GIA was talking about the screens that are on our, you know, the funds. So, uh, so that was one thing as you were, as you were talking, I was like, Oh my God, it's still going on. It's really still going on. Um, But the other thing is that um, there are, you know, there two, if you're looking at this from the artist side, there are things around, uh, like general operating support that are exa- addressing some of those same things that you're talking about. What about housing? What about uh, child care while doing work? What about uh, insurance? Um, let's talk about a mega industry that needs some equitable investing. Um, you know, savings for retirement, all of those things, um, you know, as funders, we could be supporting, right? And if we are being true to our mission around equity, then our money, whether it's invested in our endowment or whether it is going to the artists we're supporting is in part about addressing the systemic and historical disinvestment Mm -hmm. in communities of color, in indigenous communities, in women, in uh, you know micro businesses by women, by people of color, uh, by immigrants, the dis- the disabled community, all of those have been systemically disinvested in, and I think this you know it is one of those um, fundamental values. If we're talking about equity, if we're talking about just transition that we need to be addressing that. Um, And I would also throw this out there, is that individual artists are micro-businesses. This is something that came to me from uh, a group of artists. They are micro-businesses, and and they're not being invested in in the same way that, you know, some of these larger businesses are being invested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Thank you both. For folks listening who are really just getting familiar with just transition um, in culture and art, is there anything that you want to leave folks with in response to what it can look like and all of the different ways it can look like? If we go back to the just transition framework, there is sort of a set of um, recommended activities that investors um, look towards if they're looking to embrace just transition. And I'll run through them quickly and maybe add some of my own commentary. 
So the first is incorporating the just transition policy into investment statements. Oftentimes, your investment policy statement for an organization really dictates how you do this work. And we're increasingly seeing investors include language around values aligned investing um, in their uh, investment policies. Um, the second is integrating just transition into the procurement of investment services. So that might be to a point that Kita made around um, making, uh, looking at who is making funding decisions. So similarly in the investment world, you're looking at who's making investing decisions. So trying to source um, diverse teams uh, on the investment manager side. Uh, the third piece of this is engagement. So engaging with companies to make sure that they're including just transition within climate strategies, making sure that as companies plan for their own kind of uh, work on climate, they're also taking care of the communities that those companies um, engage with and are invested in. Um, the fourth piece is participating in place-based initiatives to channel capital to community renewal. A lot of the uh, organizations in GIA I know are part of uh, like local grant-making partnerships or maybe statewide grant-making initiatives mm -hmm. and making sure that um, kind of these groups collectively are, are all on the same page thinking about what the investment piece of this looks like. Uh, so those are just, you know, four of the kind of like implementation pieces of this just transition framework. But for me, the most important one is always understanding where you're at right now and understanding what you own today to chart out a course for how you might kind of work yourself into greater alignment over time. One of the things that I want um, people to think about when we're talking about extractive industries, extractive grant making, is that the source of all of this wealth is built on the back of the land, stolen lands of indigenous people and stolen labor of enslaved indigenous Africans. That's what the, everything in this country is built on that. And so if you start with that understanding, then part of your mission needs to be how to look at what I can do as an individual, what I can do as an organization, what I can do as a, a community to find new ways to reinvest that which was stolen. As far, you know, from, from an indigenous perspective, um, they're not resources, they are our sources. And you know, for me, the names of my nations come from the place where we are. That everybody looks at that as a resource, but for us, it is our source. And so how do, it's a question to all of us. How do we, as human beings, as people within philanthropy, as people with investment, knowing that the foundation of what we are investing in or what we are extending to other people through our grants, how do we alleviate some of the harm that comes from the source? We can't, you know, we're not going to get rid of the source in that sense, but we can be responsible about using it justly and we can be responsible to be aware of what we are doing with those funds and making the world a more just place by how we invest and how we give.
That's great. So are there any changes that you've seen um, or any that you've made in your specific institutions or investment work that you can speak to that listeners can model after? Yeah, so one of the things, a couple of years ago, we did do a racial equity training with our board. And um, as a result of that, our investment committee started to take a good look at how we were investing our money and has made changes to how that money is invested. They're not fully complete yet, but they are very definitely investing with a racial equity lens. That's very much what they're looking at. So that's on one level. That's, you know, our money, our source of money varies, whether it's from a quasi endowment because we don't actually have an endowment or whether from other funders who we are um, re-granters. Um, the other thing that um, I and the team, the National Theater Project team have been doing is looking at who's making the decisions about who gets the grants. Um, and those uh, that those advisors who are making the decisions, because we don't make the, that decision, um, have been more, I won't say more diverse. We're looking at it more with an equity lens. Whose voice is not at the table? Whose voice has never been at the table? Whose voice is always at the table and we don't need to hear from again? Who, you know, where are they within the field? How are they approaching their work as a whole? These, and those are the folks that are now making the decisions. So they're, we're, they're making decisions within the theater world, who's gonna get those grants, but they're within that world themselves. And so it is more of a peer decision than a funder down decision. Um, and we're looking even now at what are the issues for people of color, for uh, disabled artists, for women artists, for trans artists um, in uh, getting grants from us? What are the barriers? What's going on? And we actually are piloting a few things to give extra support to, to those folks um, to get through the application process. So there are, there are very specific things that we are using to uh, try and do more just grant making. Um, and I think it will change who is receiving grants, but I think it also changes the folks who are making decisions when they see what the result of their hard work is and how we are actually addressing that disinvestment that I talked about earlier about, around those communities who have not been invested in. There, there's really ample data out there that diversity is something that is really rewarding for companies. For example, McKinsey did a study several years ago that showed that companies in the top quartile on racial diversity outperformed their bottom quartile peers by 33%. That's pretty incredible. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about actually alludes to Kita's point around how there's different activities within foundations. And just to give someone a sense of the uh, dollar scale of this trade-off around grant making versus investing, for a typical foundation, grant making is 5% of their asset base every year. And the investing piece is 95% of what's going on 
with the capital that they control. So looking at um, whether the endowment is aligned with the foundation's broader, broader values is really like an elephant in the room for a lot of foundations because it's a really large part of um, their, their assets. So on the uh, sort of client side, um, there, I've seen a lot more very progressive demand and, and different approaches to how uh, investments are sourced. So we're seeing much more specific asks from clients around what are the demographics of the investment management team of the funds that we're showing clients, which I think is really great. And we've, uh, Morgan Stanley has been collecting data on this for a couple of years already, but now there's a much more concerted effort to look at how our own platform is constructed around how we source managers and how we can set um, emerging and diverse managers up for success when they're on a platform like Morgan Stanley is because often that comes with a very large influx of capital. So making sure that their um, you know, own operating systems are, are best in class. And that's often a consultative relationship between our firm and investment firms. Um, so the other piece is, you know, we recently published this racial equity investing guide, which is a resource that I'm happy to share with, um, with you and any members of this community, but it really outlines kind of a strategic approach to integrating racial equity within uh, investment portfolio. And it goes back to some of the things we talked about from restriction screening and making sure we're taking out the industries that are most harmful to communities of color to um, proactive solutions, but it really provides a map and also lays out the fact that, you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't need to be an all or nothing approach. Like a lot of investors will carve out a portion of their portfolio to focus very specifically on racial equity solutions. And sometimes in the way that investment committees work, it's a little easier to get people to commit to a small piece of this rather than uh, revamp the entire whole, uh, you know, at once. <laughs> so it can be about incremental changes that can be very, very meaningful. That's great. Thank you. And do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? I think the final thought is, I, I, you know, these changes are, um, you know, there is a pathway towards becoming more aligned here. And it is, uh, you know, it requires work on the part of the organization to really understand what all these different terms mean and sort of the state of the industry is also evolving very rapidly. So this isn't something that needs to happen overnight for organizations, but the uh, investment products are there and the um, advisors that have fluency in these uh, terms and approaches are there. And there's really visionary foundations that have paved the path and also shared their experience with going through this kind of process. So I would say that there is a, a welcoming community here for organizations that are just mm -hmm. thinking about taking the first step and don't know sort of, uh, where to start. Yeah, we have to all look at where we can be most effective. I think this, the um, idea that one grant maker or one investment is going to change the world is just not possible. The world's too big. Society is too big. Um, but even small changes can help make global changes. And it's a series of small changes that make big changes. And so often people feel very frustrated because I don't see the impact of what I'm doing. But the impact may be that you change that person next to you. 
and that person over there and that person over there. And then when all four of you are making the same change in the same direction, things start happening. And I, and I really, especially when we're talking about justice, it's those small moves that sometimes can change everything. Of course. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, and I just appreciate both of you being on the podcast. I loved what you said, Kita, to kind of move into a just transition, a series of small changes make big changes. And I thought that that was really powerful. And to our listeners, we look forward to continuing these conversations. So be sure to tune in to other episodes of the GIA podcast series, and be sure to follow us on Facebook at GI Arts, Twitter at GI Arts, and Instagram at Grantmakers in the Arts. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me, Sherilyn Seeley, at Sherilyn at GIArts.org. And in our most recent Solidarity Not Charity report, one of our authors says, the solidarity economy is not a buzzword and must be cultivated with long-term accountability to the communities that have been most harmed by our current systems of neoliberal governance, extraction, and narratives of racial difference. So we leave you with that today, and we thank you for listening. <laughs>